Hello and welcome to another episode of Nonprofit Vision. This is Greg Nielsen, President and CEO of Nielsen Training and Consulting, where we work with nonprofit organizations nationally, primarily in the areas of board governance, strategy, and organizational development. I'm thrilled to um, be having another podcast episode today, be joined by a friend of mine by the name of Gary Romano. Gary is the President and CEO of Civitas Strategies, which is located just north of Boston. Gary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And thank you for having me on, Greg. I'm excited to be on. Gary and I have been talking for a while. Gary is an expert uh, in the areas of, in many areas, um, but today we're going to be talking about human resources. Gary, maybe give us an overview of Civitas Strategies and some of the work that you do with nonprofits. Absolutely. So Civitas Strategies is a 10-year-old management consulting firm. And we focus on helping small to mid-sized nonprofits to increase their impact. And in particular, we only work with organizations that in some way are improving the lives of vulnerable families and children. Uh, within that area, we help on strategy. We also do recruiting and talent. And we also do evaluation, which actually we spun off two and a half years ago into its own subsidiary, Luminary Evaluation Group. So it's been an exciting time for us. Wonderful. So you mentioned that you focus mostly on small to mid-sized nonprofits. Anyone listening to the podcast knows that that's near and dear to my heart. That's where I got started as a nonprofit executive um, in both a small nonprofit and one serving children and families. So how did you, um, how did you come to focus on that, uh, on that segment of the market? You know, we've worked with large foundations and other organizations. And, and prior to having my own firm, I worked with another boutique consultancy that focused on collective impact. And one of the things I found was that there's a real bifurcation in the market for supporting nonprofits. There's the people who help the really large national organizations and the foundations, and then there's everyone else. And a lot of that has to do with price point. And what I was finding was two things. One, there was an opportunity to cross-pollinate. So we do, again, still work with some larger organizations like Kellogg and, and the Casey Foundation have been clients. Um, but at the same time, our real heart and our focus is on these smaller to mid-sized ones that tend to be underserved and don't have the resources of people like Nielsen Consulting and Civitas Strategies to, to help them out and to really give them the high-level national perspective that they need to really advance their work and impact. Excellent. And so today we're going to be talking about um, particularly issues in human resources for nonprofits. Um, and, I, you know, having talked to you in the past, I know um, that you have spoken and written about how this is the highest nonprofit labor market in the history of the United States. Why do you say that? So, you know, when you look at the history, right, and, and up until recently, I was saying, you know, one of the tightest um, labor markets and now certainly the tightest. Um, and, and I think it's because of, of supply and demand, right? So if you look historically, especially in recent history, you know, supply is down. We have, you know, whether we agree with the, the, the details or not, right? We're currently in an economy that effectively has zero unemployment in many places, right? And there's frictional unemployment, but in general, you know, we're seeing private sector or for-profit uh, wages are rising, right? We're seeing greater competition for talent, more people going to those higher paying jobs because the, the general labor market is so tight. Um, and so supply is down for nonprofits. There's also a geographical mismatch. Um, I should say, even though we're based in the Northeast, 
Most of our work is done in the South for historical reasons, and we have a lot of referrals down there, and we do a lot of great work. And one of the things we find, and again, we can go into the for better or worse, a lot of the nonprofit talent is clustered in the Northeast and the Northwest. Okay. And they don't like to move typically. And so especially if you're in the South, Southwest, it's even a tighter market for you. Um, on the demand side, you know, the sector continues to add jobs. You know, one of the things I think most people don't realize is throughout the recession, while the for-profit world was cutting jobs, the nonprofit world actually grew 8% in terms of total employment. Now, that includes hospitals and other large institutions, but it's, it's an interesting statement. And, you know, like when you look at one of the statistics that we have, you know, and this was for last year, but at the start of 2019, 57% of nonprofits across the board were planning on expanding the number of employees they have. So you see that increasing. You see retirement. 34% of nonprofit executives are baby boomers. Concurrently, 10,000 baby boomers a day hit retirement age, <laughs> right? They're going away. And yeah. so that's creating increased demand. And then further, we see greater specialization right? Like if we think about 10, 15, 20 years ago in the nonprofit sector, we weren't, we were talking about the finance guy. We weren't differentiating between the comptroller, the CFO, right? Uh, you know, recently I've seen the proliferation, for example, of grant accountants as a job. Yes. Who would have even thought about this? And it's an incredibly useful position and specialized position. But when you have a specialized position, right, that's going to increase the overall demand and it's going to take from other potential pools. Um, you know, I would say overall right now with this very tight market, in particular, you know, CEOs, EDs, um, any development position is highly competitive, um, specialized certificates like MSWs, and then the financial management areas have been particularly hard hit by these trends. And one of the things that you mentioned um, in there, I'd love to hear your comment on is the rising wages in the private sector. You know, I think how has that impacted the supply and the demand? Um, within the nonprofit workforce, where wages traditionally don't necessarily keep up with the private sector. I, you know, and that's absolutely right, right? And, and I should say that at the most basic level, we are seeing some increases in salary where possible, right? But as you're saying, you know, while you see the, the demand has gone up, right? The, the grants, federal revenue, state revenue has not increased in pace, right? Even where it has increased. So, you know, just saying, let's throw money at it as a solution where it is happening, it's not happening in huge amounts, right? What we are seeing is um, a lot more focus on being attuned to what compensation should be. So um, a lot more organizations are doing their own salary surveys. So for example, we have a protocol that we offer freely on our website that any nonprofit can use because it's hard to use the big salary surveys since they include large institutions like hospitals and yes. colleges and such. But they're getting more tuned to, are we at a market rate? Much more than they had before. I think you know, we're also seeing some other trends in terms of kind of alternative compensation because you can't just keep raising that salary. And, you know, one of them definitely is incentive pay within ethical and financial limits, right? So, you know, and, and we can all talk about fundraising as a particular area as well as others, right? There, there's definitely ethical limitations around it. But we are seeing incentive pay as an idea proliferating and in reality proliferating. Um, 
you know, we're also seeing uh, non-monetary compensation. I want to, I want to probe each of those a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Deeper. Um, and I want, first I want to talk about the compensation benchmarking. You know, I, yeah. as you and I know, the IRS obviously provides you with some safe, safe harbor provisions if your board um, goes through a particular compensation process. For a lot of nonprofit organizations that come to me and, and that I hear talking, they're trying to figure out how do we get access to reliable data of what is truly a comparable organization to ours. And I know there are some national studies out there. There's the GuideStar report and there's other things that people can purchase. But when nonprofit organizations come to you and say, hey, we want to make sure that our compensation is reasonable um, and is keeping pace with what the market will bear and is equitable for our employees, how do you recommend they start? So, and, 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 you know, spoiler alert, the, the protocol I mentioned that's on our webpage is the exact one we use internally. And part of what we've been doing when you talk about small to medium nonprofits, because some of them can never afford help, we're trying to bring everything we do open source and share it openly. So if you want to use us, great. If you don't, you can still get the information. So the protocol you see on there is what we do. And really, we do it the old-fashioned way. We look for truly comparable organizations. So we work with our client and say, what are five, six, seven, ten organizations that are similar in your mind, right? We think about the geography. We think about their size, their mission. And then we do everything we can to find it. So to find out information on, on salary. So some of that is going to be in the 990 for executive positions. Some of that is hitting LinkedIn, hitting some of the career sites. Glassdoor is an incredible resource. If you don't use it, and I don't know why a lot of nonprofits don't use Glassdoor, look it up right now on Google, right? It's people self-reporting the data. What I have found over the years is that it's, it's very accurate. I know some okay. people get concerned about self-reported salary data on a website. It's actually very accurate. And from that, we then map, and, and I should say we also especially through job postings, try to find out what we can about the benefits. And, and we will even go so far as to call up some of these other organizations and see what we can find out. But that's the kind of legwork you need to do nowadays, unfortunately, because there is such differentiation in terms of size and structure, funding, and what it'll allow, right? You know, because even if you have a Head Start agency that's the same size as a small hospital, well, Head Start funding is very different than the insurance money payments that a hospital may be getting, for example, and what you can do with it in terms of compensation. And you mentioned um, non-monetary compensation, and this is a topic that has sprung up uh, and that I hear talked about all the time of nonprofits trying to be more creative in order to stay competitive in a tight labor market. What are some of the trends that you're seeing in non-monetary compensation? Yeah, so I mean, first of all, we're seeing a lot more, a lot more um, negotiation up front. So if you are seeking a job, if you're one of the listeners who's thinking about it, right, ask ask for these things, right? It is becoming much more typical. And I think in the nonprofit world, there's still a bit of a culture of they give me what they give me and then I either take it or I walk away. No, negotiate, right? Especially on non-compensation things. You know, the organizations that we advise when it comes to the talent area, we are telling them be more receptive to this, compensate for it, prepare your management for it. So some of the things we're seeing is, you know, um, for... Uh, especially millennial um, gen, um, you know, Z um, 
employees we're seeing giving away experiences. So a lot of them, for example, there's one nonprofit I know that's in Western Massachusetts. It's a wonderful location if you have money to have different experiences, both outdoors, culturally, but a lot of times they can't afford them you know, because of the low rate of pay. So what they'll do is as an incentive, they will give them a couple of tickets to this symphony event, right? Or a couple of tickets to the local zip line, right? And that is, that's, you know, something that is seen as a really good reward. Um, I also see, especially at the senior and executive level, a lot of negotiating around the opportunity to consult. So, and, and I, you know, when I'm advising and I do advising on both sides of the equation, when I'm advising a senior leader about their career, one of the things I always say is you should have a side hustle. Every senior person or executive level person who's listening, you should have a side business. And I can go into ad nauseum as to why, but part of it is the supplemental income can really help in terms of keep you in a place you want to be in terms of your impact and career, but at the same time, have the lifestyle you want to have. And organizations are realizing this as well. And we're counseling them on, you know, right into, you know, a day or two a month, right, that you're going to lose in terms of productivity. But then this person is going to get a consulting rate that's going to make them feel a lot better about the salary you can provide. Right. Work at home, I should say, is another one, by the way. And, and that's yeah. a great point. But when you talk about the individual negotiation, and I've seen that too yeah. as a friend in the sector, when you're advising organizations, how do, you, how do you advise them to strike that balance between an individual uh, compensation package or, or set of benefits for one employee versus you know, your traditional HR policies and policy manual of everyone gets X number of days off? Um, how do you strike that balance between individualization and, um, and, and making sure you have some standard policies for the organization? No, I mean, you're absolutely, I mean, it's an excellent question, right? Because you start to tread into some very dangerous waters, potentially in terms of, of HR issues. And, you know, typically what we say is, you know, having something accessible and available to a given class of employee is different than giving it to every employee. So for example, work at home is a great example. You can have a work at home policy and we're encouraging, you know, we typically encourage every organization we work at to have that as an option because it's a powerful, powerful incentive. And it doesn't mean work at home all the time. It doesn't mean I, can't, I, I must be allowed to work at home, right? But what it does say is everyone at Greg's level, for example, has to be eligible to work at home. Here's what they have to do. They have to write a pitch to the CEO. She has to approve it. They have to meet certain conditions. So it doesn't, doesn't necessarily have to be you know, a fiat that everyone can now work at home or guaranteed. But you know, you do have to have some availability. When you start to get at the executive level and you have kind of one-off packages and contracts, it gets a little bit easier to do some of these very specific deals, right? And certainly outside work can be a similar thing where you can have an outside work policy in your employee handbook that says everyone can work outside if approved and all of these elements be approved. It doesn't mean, again, you approve everybody. Right. Now you're going to have to have a justification. You want to keep it consistent, right? But, you know, at the same time, just because you're giving a benefit to an employee doesn't mean that everyone de facto has to get it. And that's an interesting point. The, um, the other area that I want to talk about is for executives. And you mentioned that you advise several senior leaders. One of the trends that I've seen in this labor market is more of a 
move towards contracts for senior executives, for the CEO and employment contract, as opposed to, you know, the at will, you know, <laughs> here today, gone tomorrow, yes. the many nonprofit executives for years have worked under. Um, are you seeing a move towards more term-based contracts and more individual negotiations at that level? Yes, and and at the same time, you know, it's interesting because you know, you know, even if you are, um, you know, in a state that allows an employer to quote unquote remove an employee at will, right? Um, it doesn't really mean that they can just be gone tomorrow. And contractually, a similar thing. So we're seeing you know, an increased use of contracts, but at the same time, I would argue it's not necessarily changing the equation for most employers, right? If you do have a problem employee, whether you have a contract or not, you know, at the senior level or any level, you should be doing all the basics, right? right. You should be using your progressive discipline system, sticking to what's written, writing everything down, because I don't care if you have a contract or not. I've had clients say, but we have a contract. Yeah, but if you still didn't write down what the problems were and you didn't try to stick to your own policies on it, that doesn't supersede the contract. And yes, you're right, you can term somebody out um, and wait it out, but I would argue that, you know, and have argued with our clients that that's not the way to manage, you know, to set a time limit. Even if you're using it, if you have a problem, you should address a problem and not wait for it to end. Gary, what is the biggest change nonprofits need to make in their HR practices right now to be more competitive? So what I would say is, you know, first and foremost, you know, in terms of HR practices, three things, right? One is think about those, those non-compensation, um, those ways that, sorry, non-monetary compensation that you could be offering, right? How can you offer more compensation without taking on more salary, right? Two, I would really think about your, the way that you're handling discipline. Uh, you know, it's a sad statement, but so many CEOs I know, uh, EDs, have had um, wrongful termination suits that they've either inherited or happened or whatever for all the best intentioned reasons. But, you know, you should have a progressive discipline uh, pol uh, policy in place. It is, you know, we're at a point as a society where too many people are willing to go to court over issues. So be prepared for those um, and address them. And then the last thing is on the recruiting side, I think it's time to start headhunting. And, you know, I think, you know, forget about how tight the market is, any market, but particularly in a very tight market, your best talent already has a job, right? Especially in a market like this, the people who are looking actively right? It's a very slim amount. And many of those people you're going to put aside, right? Honestly, when we do recruiting, they're not our best customers, right? The ones that are the person who apply and say, I wasn't thinking about applying. And then you reached out to me. Those tend to be the best candidates. And that's not just us anecdotally, that's statistically cross sector. And that's, and, oh, I'm yeah. sorry. Continue. Oh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, and, and headhunting before people get really intimidated about it can be very easy to do. The second book I wrote, Lean Recruitment, again, going towards sharing what we do, has our entire recruiting system, which includes how you headhunt on LinkedIn and online. Super simple. And if you don't want to buy it on Amazon, it's free on our website to any nonprofits. So there's no excuse. And we designed it so that pretty much anyone at any level in a nonprofit could execute it. 
Wow. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about that, what you called headhunting, recruiting, um, especially as you said, in a tight labor market, a lot of nonprofits are um, thinking through, can we identify the talent that we need to fill our gaps ourselves internally? Or should we work with an outside, an external agency, a search firm, et cetera? How do you, you know, before we get into sort of the pros and the cons or the tips, if you're working with a search agency, how do you help nonprofits think through whether we can do this internally versus uh, whether we should look externally for a search firm? So, you know, the first thing is thinking about how big that labor pool is, right? If you have one or more very strong internal candidates, right, then I would certainly say, think about those internal candidates first, right? Do, maybe you do a posting, right? But don't actively get a recruiter, spend a huge amount of time if you have some people who are really good heir parents who are ready for the position or ready for it with minimal cost. Because instead of investing in an outside entity, you can invest in those employees, right? Similarly, if you have a position, um, you know, for example, I know one nonprofit that does warehouse staff, right? And they, they get a lot of applicants for their, you know, thrift warehouse staff don't need an outside source, right? You're getting enough people even in the tight labor market. What I would say is when you have a position that either um, continually turns over, right? And, and continually turns over not for cultural reasons, but very often you will hear salary over and over again. That's one to think about going outside, right? Because you're going to need somebody to help you think about salary and also convey a, a, a stronger message and prepare that candidate for what those realities are around compensation. For a job that you've had for, you know, I would say anywhere from, um, you know, as early as four to five weeks, and you do not have an adequate pool, which I would define as more than 10 candidates who are really worth your pursuing, right? That's a place where I would say bring somebody in. Or the third category is positions that you've historically had that challenge, right? Um, and I'll throw in one more category, which is really high risk ones. You know, we've had, um, positions that we've recruited for. We actually have one entry level position that we recruited for, but it was high visibility for a variety of reasons and high risk. And in that case, they wanted to make sure that the person was perfectly fit for that position and that the uh, search was done with all the T's crossed and all the I's dotted. Without a doubt. So if, you, if an organization does decide to go outside, go external uh, and work with a search firm, what are some of the questions they should be asking? Uh, what are some of the considerations they should have in mind when evaluating different partners? I mean, first thing is I would ask, are you going to front end decisions? You know, so many times recruiters, and this was before we were doing recruiting, we were advising clients on the recruiters they should choose. And most of the time they want to get right out there and start searching versus having the tough decisions up front, right? If you look at our system lean recruitment, um, we front load a ton of decisions. And that means people get a little antsy because they want the job on the street. But what it, what it also means is the job, the, the talent pool that you get when you're deciding is a lot more specific and related to what you want for that job versus we got a thousand people, but only three of them are really good. Um, another thing I would say is what's the role of the board and the staff within this? And you know, I think a lot of times we, when we think about a recruiter, we instantly start looking externally. But many times within the network of the board, within the network of the staff are great candidates if they are well prompted and educated about what's needed for the position. 
Um, and so really understanding their role, is it just a recruiter running off on their own or are they also leveraging the resources that your existing leadership and staff may have? Um, and that leads to how do they find their prospects in general, right? Uh, you know, many times, and you know, and I have found this to be a myth, many times you will hear recruiters say, well, we have a whole stable of CEOs, right? That are just ours. I don't know, I advise a lot of CEOs and EDs and have for years. I don't know anyone who is quote unquote owned by a recruiter. And, you know, that's a bit of a myth. And so at, at the end of the day, they have to get out there. They have to hustle. They're going to have to find names. And you want to hear how are you really going to do that? And not, I have these 10 people who are looking for jobs and I know you need to pick one of them. Um, and, you know, finally, I would say, are there ways to cut the timeline, reduce costs through sweat equity? And what I mean by that is, you know, when you look at the kind of typical recruiting gig now, this is nonprofit recruiters, right? You're talking about forty dollars to $80,000. Um, for a lot of those nonprofits, Greg, that you're concerned about, that I'm concerned about, you hear that number and they just, their eyes widen right? <laughs> it's a scary at, prohibitive number. When exactly. You and at the same time, you look at the, the labor pool and you say, but we need somebody to help us find the new ED. We need somebody to find us this director position, right? So what do we do? And so I would say is talk to that recruiter. Are they willing to use your sweat equity in some way? So for example, when we were designing lean recruitment years ago, one of the things we did was we made it totally modular. So if people want to use this for headhunting and that's it. They could use this for headhunting. Most recruiters want to do the entire system. So you may not need them to come in and help you with an interview process, but you have to buy that. And so I would ask them, do you have to buy that, right? If you feel confident in the way that your team currently handles the interview process, the negotiation and the offer process, why pay for that? right? And see if you can get that because that's going to maximize your resources when it comes to that negotiation and kind of coming full circle to what we were talking about earlier. And, and you have to come up with some different ways of compensating. So is it fair to say that um, if a nonprofit comes to you, one of the things that would make your job easier in some ways and, and potentially save them some money is if they've done some of the work up front, if they have put thought into the job description, if they have put thought into the salary range, maybe done some benchmarking themselves, put some thought into why the position may have been difficult to fill or difficult to retain up front. Are those all things that nonprofits can do to potentially save themselves some time and money? That's absolutely right. Uh, you know, the one I would disagree with is the announcement. And okay. if you look at lean recruitment, there's a very specific way we do announcements, and I would strongly recommend it. I think one of the challenges that nonprofits have when it comes to a job announcement is, first of all, they do a job description. Yes. And, and the job announcement is about selling a job, right? This is about marketing and sales, right? You have a description for an HR purpose, which is great, right? Like must lift 25 pounds and all those things. <laughs> you need that. But, but what you're putting out on the street is about attracting people. And one of the things when you look at the research is, you know, for example, um, men in general apply for a job if they have, I believe it's about 60% of the requirements. Women will push it to about 100%. Oh my goodness. So what you see is very often nonprofits will rather than again upfronting those decisions like we were talking about earlier, they'll throw everything in. They'll say, "Oh my gosh, Greg wants like, you know, we had one client who said um must have a a 
a, a happy personality and smile, right? So let's throw <laughs> that in, right? Let's throw in, there's five things that we would love if they could do, but let's throw them in too and see who we get. And what happens is that instantly becomes a filter because you have this long thing that doesn't sell, but instead overwhelms the candidate and especially female candidates. And, you know, in the nonprofit industry, that's, that's a very significant part of our talent pool. Yes. So, so I would say that's one area where expertise can be incredibly helpful or at least filtering it. So if you're going to do that work up front, make it tighter, make it shorter. Wonderful. And again, this has been uh, Gary uh, Romano from Civitas Strategies. Gary, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I know I've learned a lot on this episode. Folks may want to engage further with you or they may have uh, further questions or want to work directly with you and your group. Um, maybe give us a, some contact information or how can folks learn more about what you do at Civitas Strategies? Absolutely. They can go to our website, which is www.civstrat, C-I-V as in Victor, S-T-R-A-T dot com, uh, or they can email me directly. I'm absolutely approachable. That's just Gary at Civstrat dot com. I, I can attest to that. I have emailed Gary directly myself yeah. with questions, with comments, and I can tell you that he emails right back. He is on it. Uh, so again, those who want to work directly with Gary or want to learn more about this important topic can reach out directly to him. Uh, this has been Greg Nielsen in another episode of Nonprofit Vision Podcast. Speaking of reaching out directly, I would invite um, any of our listeners to reach out to me directly. My website is nielsenconsults.com. That's N-I-E-L-S-E-N consults.com. You can also find me on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Um, also excited to announce the launch of Board Champions. Many of you may have seen that announcement on social media last week. Invite you to visit the website. There's a tab for Board Champions where you can learn more. Gary, thank you again for your time today. Thank you for having me on, Greg. It's been a pleasure. And have a great day. You too.